0: The longleaf pine is a native tree to North America, and particularly common in South Carolina. They have a really thin, tall trunk, reddish-brown bark that's very distinctive for breaking in these particular pieces. It could be described as scaly, but they're so thin, and they kind of sprout out of near marshland. It takes 100 to 150 years for long-leaf pines to become full-size. What helps them survive is that they spread a root system that has very, very deep sinker roots and can tap into well-drained, sandy soil. Officially, the species is called Pinus palustris, or Tree of the Swamp. They are, of course, known, and the name suggests, for their very long needles and large pine cones that they produce some are almost nine inches but these trees can be quite old some of them can live to be 500 which means there are probably trees somewhere in South Carolina that existed at the time of a great battle. Fighting among trees isn't the best idea for any army, whether British or American. But then the location of this fight wasn't truly chosen. It was a march and stop that march conflict. One side, the Americans wanted to march and the British wanted to stop that march. And both sides moved a little bit faster than the other thought they would. Armies collided, both in feverish night marches among these trees about eight miles from the town of Camden, South Carolina. It being night, and neither side wanting a night battle. They both pulled back, and camped, and had a battle the next day at daylight. It's 1780. The war's taken taking a different turn. It turns south. The British think that a southern strategy is going to win the war by breaking this region away from the rebellious northern colonies. Charleston, South Carolina had been sieged and then captured by the British. This was a huge morale loss for the American side because Charleston had been successfully defended in 1776 and it seemed like that it would resist all attacks. And within Charleston, there were thousands of American troops from several states who were captured and lost for the cause. Charleston was the capital of the region and locals in the South Carolina countryside, looking at who now controlled Charleston, began taking oaths of allegiance to the British crown. Yet it didn't take long, just a few months, when the British started noticing that the populace was delighted with the thought, the rumors, that a large army would be coming to rescue them from the backwoods of North Carolina, a rebel hideout at this time, surging with resistance. And that army would be led by the hero of Bunker Hill and the victor of Saratoga, the greatest victory in the American Revolution, Horatio Gates. A British officer noticed the tumult that the men of South Carolina were made of the stuff which all Americans were made of. Once they were pacified... They signed oaths of Allegiance. Now, seeing our weakness, they were ready to fight against us. So, General Cornwallis saw to it to march with a force up the main wagon road and take on this threat directly and quickly. In doing so, he was outnumbered two to one. It's a common myth that the Americans fought the revolution always with lower numbers, and the British had this overwhelming force. In many battles, it was exactly the opposite. The British had severe limitations on their land army, which was stretched all around the world where the British Empire was at the time. And their main strength was their navy and their ability to move the forces they had. We're we'll going to be talking a lot about myths in this episode, so that's a good one to get out. The two sides meet near the North Carolina border among the aforementioned long leaf pine trees. And there, Horatio Gates would make one of a fatal mistake of that day. Uh, One of the fatal mistakes of that day. One of two. The bulk of his numbers were North Carolina and Virginia militia. Some local militia units as well. He placed them on his left. Now why would he do that? Gates has learned his craft in the British Army. And it was traditional there to put your best units at the General's right. So he reserved that spot for the great Maryland and Virginia Continental units fighting under Baron de Kalb, a German-American who was a fearless leader, trained and drilled, dressed in the proper buff and blue. And then he placed the brown hunting shirt dressed militia on his left. But that meant that Cornwallis, also obviously trained in the British style, also did the same. So he was putting the best units on his right. Now think of it as two different sides of a mirror. That means Cornwallis's right with his best units, his fusiliers, is with his worst units, the militia. The contrast was felt from the moment that the battle started. Here's what Cornwallis says. I directed Colonel Webster to make an attack which was done with much vigor. Gates's Continentals made impressive progress on Gates's right and they almost sweep the British. They do capture a cannon and they get pretty close to capturing a British officer. But it's on the left where the problem starts. Gates orders the militia to charge. They're not really used to charging. The British charge right at them, the 33rd Fusilier units, and they are experts at using the bayonets. And those bayonets are like hundreds of sharp blades pointed at you, not going away. In numbers, it was 800 on the British side to 2,000 on this left side. In shock impact, there was no contest at all. The Virginia militia and the Maryland militia simply turn around. Here's what one militia member, Garrett Watts, says about what happened at the Battle of Camden. It was instantaneous. There was no effort to rally, no encouragement to fight. Officers and men Joined in the flight, trying to avoid contact with those gleaming blades. Cornwallis describes in his account to Henry Clinton in New York that would later be published in the Glundin Gazette a few months later. There was a haziness in the air that prevented the smoke from rising, which occasioned a thick darkness that was difficult to see through. And in that thick, the Continentals kept fighting. On the right, a reserve unit was brought in in an attempt to fill the hole that the militia had created by retreating. It was held back. There was too much momentum of the Fusiliers coming through. Maryland and Virginia regiments that had made such progress on the British were now outflanked. As the British could chase the militia, hold back the reserve Continental units, and also wheel towards the Continentals fighting on the right and pour into them a heavy fire which could not be easily contested because they were facing the other way. This is the basic key to any battle. Flanking, outflanking, counterflanking. Baron Johann de Kalb, an American, would attempt to rally his forces. He dismounts his horse. And fought alongside, slashing at the British with his sword, he was wounded eleven times, eight by bayonet, two by musket, and Cobb would die of his wounds two days later. The continentals were now surrounded on three sides, and then Benestra Talton's cavalry was unleashed. He developed something of infamy. Within the states, the Continentals under DeKalb, as good as they were, were now surrounded on all sides, and with no way to defend against cavalry, they were also routed and had to run. You now have the entire American army fleeing that had previously outnumbered the British almost two to one. Also fleeing, Horatio Gates, who, as soon as his militia units started fleeing, set on his way 60 miles all the way to Charlotte, North Carolina. This was much farther than many felt he needed to go, and his reputation would never recover. This is one of the reasons why you don't hear a lot about Horatio Gates. I mean, the guy led the army before Washington was the general, and led to the the, the British you know, victory but near defeat at Bunker Hill. He's also the general that led forces in Saratoga, but you hear so little about him. And it's because of this battle that ruins his reputation. Now he's popular enough with Congress and generally with the American people to survive any kind of inquisition or that, but his reputation's never quite the same. The Providence Gazette of Rhode Island, has an article about the battle. News travels a little slow. One month later, they get the time wrong. That They say the battle occurred at 2 a.m. We are assured on good authority that a battle happened at 2 a.m. around 8 miles of Camden, South Carolina. The prospect for some time was extremely favorable to the American side who charged at the enemy. But at this critical moment, the premature flight of the militia terminated the conflict. A rumor of a British general, perhaps Cornwallis, a rumor of him being killed, was also printed in the Providence Gazette. That just shows you the poor state of press at that time. It wasn't true. One report uh, from a British officer said that for 20 miles, bodies, wounded Americans, abandoned wagon trains, and knapsacks were strewn on the road all the way to North Carolina. In three-quarters of an hour, Cornwallis says in his report, we forced them to give way on all quarters. The loss of the enemy was considerable, a number of colors, and brass cannon. The defeat and the undoing of the militia there, it fit well into the thought of that time, really. Later, in books and songs and, and fading remembrances in the early 1800s, the militia would be saluted. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was a big fan of having you know, no standing army and simply militia, and would salute their, their praises. Around the time of the revolution, there was more critical thought. George Washington wrote his nephew at Lund, Washington that militia lacked discipline, did great injury to other troops, and never had officers worth the bread that they eat. Camden was as terrible as the defeat as they came, partially the result of that militia. One thousand men captured. Another of that many killed or wounded. The collapse of an invading push to liberate the South. You know, the British didn't end up getting a lot out of Camden. Cornwallis sneers that the countryside was so influenced by rebel militias that even talking about the British success could get somebody hurt or killed. And so... News of the battle didn't even go that far in the countryside. At least that's his contention. They didn't get a much, much out of Camden. I mean, the Americans would learn from that defeat, a proper way to use militia. And at Calpans, they do exactly the reverse and use the militia only as a supporting force with the Continentals reinforcing. And the British would suffer another defeat at King's Mountain. And that fearsome cavalry, Tarleton's cavalry, would be completely decimated at Calpens, and he'd barely escape. So some of the shine of Camden you know, didn't last long, but it was a ter- as terrible a defeat as they came in that war. You see it portrayed in the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson, depicting this battle and the American defeat, and, you know, it's Mel Gibson's character's conclusion that the worst thing we could do is meet the British, muzzle to muzzle. Why are we doing that? A guerrilla war is the way to go, one signified by Gibson's character, tomahawk in hand, leaping at British redcoats. This is the way American history is taught. You know, the idea that militia won the American Revolution by hiding behind trees and lobbing shots at unsuspecting British, who, because of their adherence to some kind of fancy tradition, lined up and were easy targets. Oh, it's a common assertion. But there's little truth behind it. For the most part, it's not at all correct. Most battles, the key battles, Long Island, Brandywine, Monmouth, Germantown, Cowpens, Guilford Courthouse, Saratoga, and the one we just spoke of, Camden, were fought in the style of the day. Both armies in lines. And either side, American nor British, did it. Out of any kind of adherence to fancy, they did it so as not to give up the powerful advantage that linear tactics gave. And another thing, both sides, and yes, including the British, used life in in infantry, used different non-linear tactics to supplement, flanking units, supplementing the line never being foolish enough to submit to just one rigid formation. Thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast. And as you know, as part of the podcast, I'm doing a little kind of sub-cast within the cast, and it's called American Revolutionary War Sketches. They're just sketches. It's not a complete history of the Revolutionary War, though who knows by the time we're done you know, with this, because I'm having an awful lot of fun with it. Um, it could be, could be a decent history, but I like to just look at little things at a time, as if you're looking at my sketchbook. And it's great for me, by the way, uh, because, you know, doing my history can beat up your politics. It's great, but a lot of times I, I do want to read some things for which there really isn't a current angle on current politics, and I just want to read my Revolutionary War books and learn a little bit about the Revolutionary War, um, as I'm recording this, uh, we're about to go to uh, Valley Forge, so that's going to be exciting. I'm sure I'll have some things to say about that uh, once I go. And, you know, the the revolution, look, I mean, what is the connection to current politics? There, there's a slight one. I mean, anytime you talk about the revolution, you're talking about current politics because it's the way the country was founded, and a lot of people's arguments on a variety of issues go all the way back to the revolution. So this series is important. Thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast so that you get it. Here's from an article uh, American History. American militia or Minutemen rushed forth whenever the alarm sounded to confront the brightly dressed British regulars who marched across the battlefield in tightly bunched formations, offering easy targets. Colonists smartly hid behind rocks, trees, and fences and used their superior rifles to wreak havoc on the advancing redcoats who were armed with inaccurate smoothbore muskets. That would make no sense to an American soldier who fought in any one of the major battles where Americans lined up in long formations and took on the British forces in what was the best method available, one that they had worked hard to be able to compete with. It's a key myth. But look, there is some truth behind it. We began this series, the American Revolutionary War Sketches," talking about the Battle of Concord. And I know if you listen to that one and you're listening to this episode, you're probably saying, hey, wasn't that one where they fired behind trees? And it is true. In those skirmishes after Concord and the British were retreating because it was a very limited roadway that they could walk on, the Americans did not meet them in line in that case not immediately, the Amer- not on that road, but at the bloody angle, there were Americans firing from trees and getting maximum firepower on the British. It's one situation, one particular battle, and it was particularly bloody for the British. There were also several times during that day, including at Lexington, where Americans did form a line. At Concord, the Americans were formed in line, and the British walked past them. In other words... That line was so formidable, the potential of fighting it so bloody that the British decided not to contest the American force at Concord, but to leave. The majority war was not conquered. The British would always, you know, not, would never so easily allow themselves into situations like that. I mean, it could happen. We talked about the Garrison War and the Forage War um, after the Battle of Trenton and Princeton, the, where, yes, there were some outnumbered troops. It does seem a little silly to modern ears, right, knowing the weaponry that we have now. and Why would people form tight formations three ranks deep and fire volley after volley? And every time you shoot, move closer together. Clumped together, soldiers seem to offer foes a sitting duck target. But it's true of both sides. Why'd they fight this way? American officers with prior military experience had learned the art of warfare under British commanders in the French and Indian War. This is true of George Washington, many of his staffs. This is the direction, Horatio Gates as well, this is the direction they wanted to go. They wanted to get better at this. The best way to think about it, I think, in modern terms is, what would you rather have in a fight? A revolver or a machine gun? You know, a fight with a bitter enemy on the other side, a revolver or a machine gun. And when you line up in linear fashion, you are forming an 18th century machine gun. A machine gun of many men. (laughs) You want the machine gun. And the closest you come to it is to line up with your red or blue coats in formation, well-trained, and hold your smooth-bore military musket. If you're on the British side, this is the brown best. Fire and load, fire and load, fire and load. One rank, then get down, reload. The next rank, fires, get down, reload. The next rank on the knee, fires, reloads. You will not waste time aiming at any particular Yankee or any particular Brit. You will fire forward, just forward, firing your gun. Or if commanded by your officer, you will turn in a slight oblique, left or right. This is like the officer commanding a giant cannon shooting huge amounts of grape shot that way. But no particular soldier is aiming at anyone. That would be too slow. Your goal is fast as possible, fast. And you can shoot within the range of about a football field. British musket, a little bit farther with some of the French guns the Americans had. You know, about eighty yards. You were firing as much as four times a minute in this fashion, and if you were well trained and good at it, you were going to destroy the force ahead of Heta you. And then to finish them off, you would stay in those ranks, put your bayonets on, and charge forward, routing them. Linear positioning with the way you won wars, and explain the significance of the contribution of the American cause of Baron Frederick von Steuben. Joining Washington's regulars in their winter encampment at Valley Forge in February 1778, this German baron simplified the British manual of arms, figured out how to teach it to militiamen turned continentals, and trained them relentlessly and effectively rapid loading, rapid firing of the musket, so they could combat the British and kick them off of the land they felt was rightly theirs. Without learning to do that, there is no way that they could prevent a British force from capturing the American cities and, the, and, the, and all of the objections they needed to, to face. You could not take down a British army in linear fashion unless you could do the same. Now, what about trying to shoot from the trees and picking them off, a la Concord? Well, Concord, the British were greatly outnumbered. It was a small road. They were running out of ammunition. There's all these factors against them. But even at Concord, if you're going to shoot from trees like that, all that the British have to do is is put out flankers. So these are men in in light infantry, and the British had units like this, in lighter uniforms who, yes, very much were trained in accurate shot and were shooting at specific targets. It wasn't just an American or Indian trick, right? Um, And they would take out anybody who is like waiting behind a tree shooting at the line as it moves forward. You're going to get hit by the flankers. You're going to have to defend yourself against the flankers. And if the line's able to do it oblique, they could also get you as well. What about rifles? Well, rifles versus muskets... You know, it had been in use for 100 years. They're plentiful in the southern and middle colonies. Good use for hunting. More accurate, more effective. The Americans in many cases were better shots. They could do several hundred yards instead of 80 yards. But it came at a price. They were slow. And they took a long time to load. It was about a minute or more to patch the ball and ram it down the barrel to engage the rifled grooves. That spun the ball and gave it that good trajectory that you wanted, and while it's loading, a flanker is going to kill you and if you didn't load it right, it wasn't going to be so accurate, so unlike the riflemen too, musketmen did not have to carry the powder horns used in the very time consuming measurement of powder for each charge. they had cartridges so there's really been a great misunderstanding uh, or lack of, of military history, and it's you know it's it's common because I, I don't really. I deal more with the history of politics and things like that. I'm not as interested in military history and the fighting, but sometimes it's important because we're being taught in school that the Americans won the war by hiding behind trees or fighting like Indians or something like this. And it's only only true in a very limited fashion. Uh, I think one quote that sums it up is, rifles are fine weapons for shooting at things that don't shoot back, like deer. Now, rifles would get a lot better at the time of the Civil War, and that's where you're going to see a change and less use, uh, ju- less usage of the musket. Here's another problem with rifles and any kind of long arms that someone might bring to a battle. They were not fashioned to accommodate bayonets, and bayonets are the essential weapon to think of in the Revolution. That's what really sealed the deal at Camden. It wasn't even linear firepower, although that could have been executed very well by those 800 fusiliers. And they could have routed the militia perhaps that way with, with a excessive fire. But instead, it was a bayonet charge. And just like, you know, linear tactics create a massive volley, they also create a massive set of blades and a very high impact and very good chance of injury or death when that's coming at you at high speed.
2: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The Americans had bayonets, and if they used some of the French muskets, they could put them on. But some of the civilian weapons, like rifles, couldn't do that. The only way you could do a bayonet was to plug them, which means you were plugging and preventing your weapon from firing. So I, I do find it funny sometimes that the weapon of the American Revolution that decided a whole host of battles, uh, and we're, we're talking about a modern time, you know, the, the 17, late 1700s, is essentially a spear, but it's a spear that's used well, used in formation, and used by a person very trained to fight that way. The militia did play an important role in the American Revolution, but it shouldn't be overstated as well. Some of them, militias, and across the, you know, there's a big variance. Some militia laws specified only a few days of annual training. Selection of militia officers was often based on social status, charisma, other than military experience. One militia unit just left the field right before the battle at Saratoga. You saw that in Camden, South Carolina. That might have been the worst example, and they fought better in other places, but it certainly showed that a lack of drilling and a lack of training did not help. And in terms of fighting like gorillas, let's say, they did play a part. It's best to say they were a condiment rather than the meat. Ordinary pitched battles decided the outcome of the war. And the British had at least as much guerrilla light infantry chops and training as Continentals did. And in terms of fighting like Indians, almost all the significant Native American tribes, not all, you know, the Nation is one um, that sided with Americans, but significant Native American tribes sided with the British. Some of the talk of Americans fighting like Indians or guerrillas is the fantasy of the underdog story, and some of it's based on little reality. The Americans did surprise. They did fight while retreating to fight another day. They did, as we talked about in the Forage War, come up with schemes to outnumber limited garrisons and attack supply lines. All of it might lead people to think that the entire conflict was sometimes of guerrilla war. Here's the way to think about it. Unlike Mel Gibson's character in The Patriot, right? America was a country. Uh, the states were seen by as, as places to live, uh, homes, farms, families. Americans were not interested in hiding in the woods and ceding the countryside to the British. They were contesting that countryside. And to contest countryside, you needed to form a line and learn how to shoot fast. Thanks for listening and thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast.